The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodhi. Joining me today from Melbourne is analyst Mickey Mordek. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Gaurav. Got the dog uh, right there, do you? <laughs> no, he's... Uh, where is he, actually? He, I would say he was on his bed, but he, uh, when I got home yesterday, he'd eaten it. So, um, oh, he ate his sure bed. He, is. he ate his own bed. I didn't realize dogs did that, but th- there you go. No, I, it's, um, I did not either. Te- yeah, it teaches me for leaving him alone for a few hours. Well, I'm sure we'll hear from your dog during the podcast, uh, just as we're going to hear from our Vancouver correspondent for the first time in ages. Graham, are you there? <laughs> Hi, Gaurav. Wow, it's a treat to have you on. Thanks for joining us, and um, welcome to Stock Day, Graham. It's been too long <laughs> since we've had you on. Hopefully, you're going to be a more regular guest. Everything that sounds there. good to me. There's a pretty rough segue there, though. I mean, going from my, my dog to Graham. <laughs> <laughs> from one stranger of the podcast to another, yes. <laughs> All right, um, Mickey, let's begin with you. I oh, know, Graham, while I've got you, let's start with you, in fact, because um, you've been covering Tabcorp since we upgraded it a few years ago, in fact, pre-pandemic. Um and the investment case you laid out was that the lotteries business in in Tabcorp was worth far more than the um, than it was embedded into the valuation at the time. Um, that appears to be playing out right now. Tell us what's happened with Tabcorp and why the share price is going up. Uh, well, there's a few different things happening with Tabcorp. There's always these two businesses that you kind of need to separate because they're completely unrelated. They were just smashed together when uh, it merged originally with. Uh, tats a couple of years or a few years ago but anyway the lotteries business is the main uh, breadwinner for the company so it's a it has to be one of the best businesses in Australia it has a monopoly over all of Australia's lotteries except for those in western Australia uh, it churns out free cash flow it's regulated there's no competition and uh, yeah it just you can't get higher returns on capital basically it, it takes almost nothing to run the other side of the business is the wagering division which is, has always been the problem child for Tabcorp. It's got very cyclical earnings. It also has uh, a lot more competition, particularly online from overseas bookies. Uh, and it's just recently got a bid, however, uh, from also a UK uh, bookmaker. But as we were saying in the article last week, it's, uh, it's just completely undervalued the company. We're not even big fans of it. We think that it's by far the worst side of the business. Mm. But if you compare it to other bookmakers out there, even the bookmaker buying it, it's just ridiculously undervalued. Does it surprise you the way this has played out? Because we were all in furious agreement about the quality and the value of lotteries. And in fact, we're not alone. There's lots of other fundies and good investors who recognize the value in that lottery business. But the bid and all the attention is now suddenly on the wagering business. What what makes that wagering business attractive to a competitor? Well, it's attractive to competitors for for several different reasons. One is that it is actually a pretty good uh, 
business in Australia specifically, where it has uh, a lock on the physical points of wagering, so the different tab outlets and the retail side. Uh, it's really the online that's got a lot more competition. Uh, however, for someone to come in and buy it, particularly with the online side growing so much, the you can just pull out a lot of costs from it. And it also, you tend to get better odds out of that, which then can attract more punters uh, because they can provide different financial incentives to new uh, to new customers. It's 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 likely then that the do you think it's it's likely that the bid is going to succeed and and what happens to the rest of the company does it just sell a, its um its wagering business and then become a lottery business or is this a precursor to a larger restructure? It wouldn't surprise me if it does succeed, even though uh, I think that it there's a very strong case that it's being undervalued by the current bid. Maybe someone else will come in or maybe the current bid will be lifted to to attract the board a bit more. But because it's always been the difficult side of Tabcorp, there's just been a new management that's come in. It wouldn't surprise me if they want a clean slate, they want to just focus on their juicy lotteries business, and they don't have any skin in the game, they don't have a large shareholding or anything. So if they sell it for a little bit below what it's worth and get this uh, this difficult side of the business out of their way, you could pretty... It's, it's the old Warren Buffett uh, joke that, lotteries could be run by a ham sandwich and they'd still make money. So I think that they'd probably want to focus on that and just have an easy life, basically. So yeah, if it does succeed, uh, I think it will be because management just don't want that side of the business. And why has it taken so long? I guess this is the, the frustration that I have with um, with Tapcorp. I actually, I was a shareholder in Tapcorp, but I sold out in frustration because I thought management was atrocious and have this rule about not holding businesses with crappy management. And um, it's taken so long and so much ag agitation to get any action on the split. What has been the roadblock or the hesitation, do you think? I'm not sure what the hesitation would be. Maybe the prior management were a bit more reluctant to because they came from the Tabcorp side that was mostly wagering. So they, mm -hmm. ha they would have more experience in wagering. Uh, but yeah, we weren't huge fans of... Um, Attenborough and his team anyway so oh you're being far too kind Graham they were I would call them up there with AMP and NAB as some of the <laughs> worst managers of big companies in Australia yeah they, it was pretty atrocious uh but they combined the two companies and I think that had some merits that was yep. on the table for 10 years and they finally got it over the line through the regulators. So no, agreed. I think they can be com commended for that at least. But now they want to get rid of the <laughs> that side of the business anyway. <laughs> what do you think if they, if they do sell it off, uh, what do you think that does for the valuation of the lotteries business? And also, what, like, what do you think they would do with that money? Would that be returned to shareholders or would they look for acquisitions or something like that? God, I hope they don't look for acquisitions. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a couple of different ways that it could play out. One that management has floated is the idea of just spinning off the wagering business. So even if this current uh, takeover doesn't go through, they may end up separating the businesses and allowing shareholders to own them independently. Uh, that would, I think, be the better option for everyone uh, because then the people who don't like the wagering business can sell that. The people that do want to keep the lotteries can hold onto that. But by separating them, it it means that each can be recognized for its own merits. At the moment, what you have is 
the lotteries business, which is fantastic, being kind of constantly clouded by what's happening in the wagering side. So it wouldn't surprise me if the if wagering does get sold or they do separate it, it will just mean there's a clearer view of what's happening in lotteries. And I think as a standalone business, people will, will just put it on a higher earnings multiple, basically. Uh, it will be more attractive standalone. It also means management can focus on that rather than being distracted by wagering. At the yeah. moment, wagering only accounts for a third of the uh, operating profits, but I would bet that management probably spend two thirds of their time worrying about it. <laughs> yeah, mm. it just seems like a strange, it, like that lotteries business, because it is such a predictable, you know, money spinner. It seems like a strange thing to have listed on its own. Yeah, I completely um, agree. And then, yeah. so what? Ha- yeah, why is that? It's it seems like a utility to me. I mean, yeah. I think it's a productive utility. It'd be a, but... <laughs> surely be a sitting a sitting duck takeover for a superannuation fund. Well, yeah, yeah, it's had several bids over the years. Everybody loves it. Everyone recognizes what it, what they've got there. But mm. uh, I think it would be harder to take over once it's a standalone business because it would it would just always be trading at a premium, I think. It does remind me a little bit of, we've written up um, Deterra, which is an, a spinoff from iLuca, and it's an iron ore royalty business. And a bit like lotteries, it doesn't really do anything except sit there, except revenue generated by a very stable and safe source, and then decide how much to pay themselves and how much to pay shareholders. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, that as easy as it gets. Yeah, I think that's very similar to what lotteries is. I love the old um, quote that lotteries are just attacks on people bad at maths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's true that it, it, it just pumps out money with practically zero work uh, in terms of actually running the operations. It's just a cash machine, essentially. And, so, and it's not going to go out of fashion. Lotteries, there, there was a little bit of uh, disturbance a few years ago when uh, synthetic lotteries were around, but that was banned recently. That That's mm. where people can strangely bet on the outcome of the lottery rather than participating in the lottery themselves. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, but that was banned through campaigning by Tabcorp uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago. So that's really the only competition that's ever developed for lotteries and it's gone now, so they've still got their monopoly. And I suppose the risk really is just around renewing those lottery licenses every 20 years or so, right? Yeah, the risk is, I mean, it's not necessarily a risk because it's a known risk. They have, it's, it's very much like a miner in that it's depleting its mine as it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it has to, although it throws out plenty of cash each year, it has to every 10 to 30 years has to rebuy these licenses. But it also has an edge compared to other operators because it's the incumbent. It already has all the systems in place. It has all of the... Uh, operations there so it can run the show cheaper than other parties so it can usually bid higher and that's been what's happened why do you think um they've never had a go at um buying jumbo i don't know well they own 10 percent of it so they they do have a stake in the company but probably just because jumbo was always overvalued compared to Kind well, of tab corp. It's gone up but, a fair few times. So if you bought it early, you probably they would have done. Yeah. Hard, but. but when you think about why it's gone up, it's gone up partly because of Tabcorp's generosity that they were an exclusive distributor for uh, the lotteries business. And if lotteries cut that contract, it would have it would have until now because uh, Jumbo's got a few other things going now. But I mean, there wasn't really any value in 
Jumbo, it was all in the contract that it had with Tats already. And so if Tats wanted it, it could just cut that contract and then take it over afterwards, perhaps, um, and then kind of annoy everyone. But it didn't really have to, I don't think. It could have, and it, we've kind of seen it in the last year. It was doing, Jumbo was doing a better job online until recently, but Tabcorp seems to have caught up a bit and they now have a better online uh, online distribution channel for lotteries. So mm. I think they're going to outcompete it in the long run anyway. They don't need to buy it. Mm. So, Graeme, what do you think, how much do you think this is ultimately worth? It looks like the investment case is playing out. We've got a bid already set up and a split is probably more likely than not at this point. Uh, how much higher can Tab go? What's it worth? Well, looking at the different divisions, when we sum it up, we think that it's worth about $6.50 a share. The And that includes, though, the wagering division, which we peg at kind of $5 billion or so. Uh, at the moment, it's only being valued in the bid at $3.5 billion, So there's quite a way to go before we think the wagering division would be at fair value, uh, mm. though it wouldn't surprise me at all if they end up selling it for between what it is now and five, uh, just to get it off, get it off their um, hands. Uh, but yeah, Tabcorp overall we think is worth about six fifty a share. Right. So this compared this to the current share price of five dollars, yeah, 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 it's still despite despite its increase in price over the last little while, we think there's still, or I think there's still room to go. Mm. Mickey, what do you reckon? Interested? In Tabcorp? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i always more interested at half the price back back <laughs> in when it went down. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it sounds, it sounds pretty compelling. Um, I'll, I, I mean, I'm deferring to Graham, obviously, but... Um, uh, what I would like to do is I would like to get, buy Tabcorp, uh, a couple of coal miners, and maybe some of the casino companies together. <laughs> <laughs> And create Just a really have a nice... socially responsible uh, <laughs> portfolio. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how all those businesses um, do actually. But but it's been really um, it's been quite a good piece of research so far. Great, well done on on Tapcourt. Looks like everything's working out nicely. Thanks. There's still some way to go. Now let's move on to gold, which is something that we don't discuss very much here at II. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote. Um, kind of a rant about why I was not interested in gold and why we should never invest in gold miners, uh, which is something that my colleagues had all been telling me for a long time anyway, so I think I was the last one to see the light. And the, the gist of that was really that, that gold is different to other commodities and you cannot predict the future price of gold because it acts more like a currency than a, a commodity. The demand is all investment demand, it's very fickle, and the supply doesn't really add to the stock of gold, which is the same as it was uh, you know, several thousand years ago, basically. Um, all the gold in the world would fill up one and a half Olympic swimming pools. It's, it's, it's legitimately rare, um, and new supply is also quite small. So it, it's, it's anyone who tells you they know what the gold price is going to be is, is really uh, lying or an idiot because they don't. Um, and if you don't know that price, it, it makes valuing a gold miner very difficult. So we've, we've tended to stay away from this area. Um, and for the secondary reason that gold miners, uh, ever since I can remember, have just been truly awful businesses run by awful management teams. And they've habitually wasted money, sought um, egotistical expansions, um, 
wasted uh, spent allocation uh, spent allocated capital terribly and um, tried to expand output at the expense of profit. That's been the story of gold miners over the last maybe 30, 40 years in Australia. But I would say over the last five years, something has changed. Um, you guys probably wouldn't be aware of this, but gold miners have, have actually turned the corner and they've been run by accountants, um, financial types rather than geological types. And they're actually generating decent returns. They're actually prioritizing financial metrics over operating metrics and capital allocation has dramatically improved. And this is not just one or two miners. This has really happened across the board in Australia. And it's now starting to happen internationally as well in international gold miners. We've seen a similar thing happen to BHP, Rio and the big mining companies. And it's now happening in gold. So I think it's it's probably worthwhile wading back into the gold sector and and seeing what these changes have done for the financial returns of gold. What do you now think before, prompted the changes? Well, it, I think it started off with um, some of the big international mining companies. I think the gold miners saw what was happening in uh, the likes of South 32, uh, Rio Tinto and BHP and how the share market, how investors had reacted to that and lifted their share prices up. And a couple of gold miners in Australia started doing the same thing. So Evolution was probably the first, along with Northern Star. Uh, they were two companies um, that, uh, that pioneered uh, financial returns, return on capital, careful cap capital allocation. Um, and as they succeeded, the rest of the mining industry has kind of followed them as well. Uh, it only I often see that in mining, and I think in many other industries, it, it takes one or two businesses to set an example. If that example is successful, the rest of the industry does tend to follow. And I think that's just what ha what's happened here. So it across kind of surprises the board, me because you'd think that uh, you wouldn't need many examples to know that making money was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I think that's right. Well, it's sort of like, right. I mean, it's, a, it's a, well, it's also like a lot of industries where, you know, like we sort of assume that management is like a static thing and you have good managers and bad managers, but over time, like best practices improve and people, you know, there are lessons that are learned along the way. People don't just forget stuff. It's like, you know, mm. they're, you know, and if you want to be a manager, then you, you, you know, you learn about this stuff. And, um, I guess there are, there are some mistakes that repeat, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, most industries, I guess the management teams of today versus 50 years ago, you'd assume would be better on average. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, uh, most unless, yeah. for most, yeah, I'd say there's a few exceptions there, but, but for most, I think that's probably correct, yeah. And you're right, there's a cumulative knowledge that builds. But, but Graham, I take your point. I think it's been fairly obvious that gold has been poorly run for a long time. Um, and whatever the reason, it, it does appear to have turned around. Um, gold went, and I think it's, it takes a crisis to turn these companies around. So mining had the worst um, commodity downturn in a generation. Um, I think it was around 2013, 2014, 2015. And in those years, they were forced to be very lean. Uh, boards brought new management in. And, um, and that's when changes really started to happen. And the same thing happened in the gold industry, where there was a savage downturn that, um, that really hurt gold miners across the board. And a similar sort of clean out and change uh, began after that that downturn. Um, 
that I, I think you can always point to, to those sort of crisis moments that lead to improvements. But that brings us to evolution, which is, I think, one of the first miners to start managing their businesses properly. And, and we've gone through the, I wrote up evolution um, earlier in the week, and you can read that review. And it goes through the history of, of the founder of evolution, Jake Klein, who, funnily enough, um, both neither of you will remember this because uh, this happened in, when we were in the old Bondi office, but we actually shared an office with Jake's earlier business, which was Conquest Mining. So Jake made a fortune building up um, a, a Chinese gold business called Sino Gold, which he built in the 1990s. He used to be a Macquarie banker before then. Then he decided out of the blue to run a, a Chinese gold miner. And he sold that thing for, for over $2 billion, came back um, and started this and, and joined this tiny little mining business called Conquest Mining, which had nothing, just a cash box. I think it had one meager asset and not much else. And they actually shared a building with Intelligent Investor in Bondi. And I remember seeing Jake in the elevator and, and Greg Hoffman actually pointed him out and said, oh, you know, that guy, that guy just sold a $2 billion business. Um, you should go talk to him. You know, he's, he's doing a new business now. And I looked up Conquest and I saw it had nothing. And I thought, Greg, why would you want, want me to talk to this business? They don't do anything. Um, and later on, a few years later, um, Conquest became Evolution through a series of deals. And it was worth about half a billion dollars at that stage. And that's when I actually reached out to Jake Klein and, uh, we did a podcast together and I met him and uh, he explained evolution and the philosophy. And even at that stage, I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. They're doing something different. It sounds like a really good manager. But I always thought the asset quality was pretty poor and I was not really interested in gold. And now when it's an $8 billion business, <laughs> now I think I finally come around and I think it looks quite interesting now. Um, any questions so far, Jen? So shall I, um, shall I continue? No, no, that was, um, it's a good, good story, isn't it? Um, it's just so hard to pick these things until people have a track record, I guess, is the, is the, is kind of part of that as well. But, well, you know. I think, I think this is, this is one of the tricky things about, about gold miners because traditionally, even five or six years ago, I would have thought the management of gold miners is less important than their, than their mines and their assets. And I didn't really understand how important capital allocation was in gold miners. And that's turned around. My view now is that management is just instrumental, maybe more important in these resources business than in traditional businesses because you're dealing with a declining asset base. And so how you allocate your rare free cash flow is actually super important in maintaining the value of your business. So how it's, it's do, become, does this business use its free cash flows? Uh, really, really well. So they've grown a really modest resource base and they started off with quite poor quality mines and they've just they've milked those mines for cash sold them bought better quality mines and iterated that process a, a handful of times so they've actually sold four assets and bought three assets in their 10-year history which is quite a lot of activity for a gold miner and in between they've run those assets really well generated lots of free cash flow in the last three years they've they've generated more than a billion dollars of free cash flow um, and that's, I mean, gold has been reasonably high last year, but it hasn't been crazy high. I don't think we're talking about boom conditions here. It's not as though I'm boasting about iron ore prop miners generating free cash flows at $200 a ton iron ore, right? I, I don't think we're talking about that kind of boom. Um, and evolution, in fact, is now the miner that generates the highest free cash flow per ounce of production in the world. It pays the highest dividend among any peer in the world. And 
it does that with an asset base that on on the face on the face value actually looks quite modest. And when I started looking into the mines a little more closely, a few things stood out about the the mines that that evolution selects, and they tend to be mines that are geologically very simple. And I think that's something that miners get wrong sometimes. So if you look at a business like Newcrest, Newcrest on paper looks amazing. It's actually the lowest cost gold producer in Australia by a mile. It has the largest reserves by a long shot. And it has huge mines. I think three of their assets are actually in the top 10 mines in the world by size. Uh, so they're absolutely enormous. But because they're so complex, they require a lot of reinvestment um, really large processing facilities, um, problems occur all the time, and um, they have to have custom-made um, uh, power, custom um, water, uh, they don't have sealed road access, and that all just adds to complexity and cost, whereas Evolution has sought mines that are just very simple to run. And a good example of this might be their largest asset, which is in um, New South Wales, and it's known as Coal. I actually visited the mine a few years ago when it was when it was under its um, international owners. I think it was uh, Newmont, I think, owned the mine back then. And and this was a, about as easy as gold mining gets, really. It's, a, it's one big hole in the ground. It's got sealed roads. They've got grid power. They're on the edge of a lake, so there's plenty of water. Um, and you might think, well, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? A large gold mine will consume as much energy as a medium-sized town <laughs> well or, or as as much as as a as a several bitcoin these days yes um they really add to costs and moving material around on dirt roads really adds to cost um geological simplicity ensures that you can run your operations using bulk mining techniques which um, reduces your per ton costs these things you know they don't scream out in the headlines but they make a lot of difference um to the bottom line and, and I think evolution uniquely doesn't focus on those big, um, big headline numbers like grade and um, size, but they do focus on how much free cash flow comes out of their assets. And when I was calculating the average returns of these assets, I mean, it was quite extraordinary. Quite, what looked like quite modest assets on paper were often generating multi-year um, cash returns of 20% plus, which is really unheard of in, in the gold mining area. So it's a business that's doing something quite different to its peers. And it's managed with, um, with a, a mindset and care that I haven't really seen in gold miners before. And, and that's why does, I think evolution looks interesting. Does management have a big stake? Is that why? Well, not really, Graham. This is curious. So Jake Klein himself owns, what, 2% of the business or something, which is about... 80 to $100 million worth of stock. It's somewhere around there. So it's a, it's oh, a lot it. of money. <laughs> but but it's, not, it's, only, it's not a huge amount, right? If we, if we heard management earn 2% of the business, we wouldn't think that that's a great deal of insider ownership. Um, so it, it, it doesn't just come from insider ownership. It just comes from the, the culture of the place. And a good example I found was just in the, um, in the reserve calculation. You know, when gold miners calculate their reserves, they have the discretion to pick the gold price they apply to their reserves. And the higher the gold price you pick, the more your reserve expands. And so a very, something you see in gold, in booming gold markets is that gold miners' assumptions start creeping up 
and their reserves start growing, even though they're not digging anything or they haven't actually discovered more gold, they just increase their price assumption and that increases the reserves. Um, evolution uses the lowest assumed gold price in the industry. Um, and it's sort of 50% less than some of their peers. Um, and to me, that that paints a picture of a deeply conservative organization that isn't trying to present itself in the best possible light. Um, it really is focused on generating cash flow. And the dividends have been terrific. That they've, they've paid dividends in nine nine years straight. In fact, I think they've increased dividends for nine years straight, again, which is unprecedented in this sector. Um, and there's a big opportunity now because the, the share price has fallen by 25% uh, over the last six months or so. And that's related to a new mine that they've purchased in Canada. And I've written about the details of that. It's pretty technical. I don't really want to go through it in the podcast now. It would bore those not interested. But I, I would recommend going and reading the review on evolution. It just highlights how they can there's very specific steps they can take to turn this mine around. And they've outlined those steps very deliberately and carefully. And a business with this track record with acquisitions and allocation probably deserves uh, some credit. And I think they're actually quite credible plans. So I, I think it looks quite interesting. I'm interested in buying it myself. Um, I would add that I was completely alone <laughs> in our internal review process and, and evolution perhaps rightly received no love because it is a gold miner. And, and like I said up front, we don't know what the gold price will be. I have no idea what it was going to be. And with that volatility, it's probably not a stock that we can recommend to, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of members. So um, it's it's presented as an idea. I think it's a good one. And if you're interested, um, have a read of the review. Having said that, though, I mean, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's done really well, even though the gold price has been up and down quite a lot over its time, right? So I wonder if I wonder if it is it can be a mistake to just write off an entire um sector. Uh but then I again, think... yeah, I mean I mean it, yeah. There's there's lots of businesses out there, so you can you can be selective, but um Yeah, we see uh, this time and time again. So an example that I often use is is Southwest Airlines, which you know, one thing I really dislike about um about value investors is the is the um they sometimes can be very dogmatic in their views and if buffett has said something it suddenly becomes gospel mm. and of course we all know buffett said he would never invest in airlines and that's sort of become gospel amongst airliners uh, amongst uh, value investors of the last 30 years but in the u.s southwest airlines has been a, a brilliant business and generated lots of shareholder value and i would argue maybe Qantas. Graham might disagree as the Qantas analyst, but I, maybe Qantas is a bit different in Australia as well. But that's probably a debate for another day. But I take yeah. your point, Mickey. In crappy industries, there are always businesses that can do that do reasonably well. Yeah, yeah, and it might even be worth paying more attention to them because I guess it does say something about the management, as you say. I mean, if there's a if there's a tough industry and someone's making it look easy, then but mm. um, then they're frauds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Toyota, Toyota um, in car manufacturing is probably <laughs> another one, right? I mean, yeah. every company in the world, every manufacturer in the world uses the Toyota production system, and and they've been quite successful over a long period of time in a in a famously competitive business. All right. Well, I'm putting in my buy order for Evolution now, um, Gaurav. <laughs> so get ready. <laughs> All right. That's one person convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions, gents? Uh, Graham, anything to add as a native Canadian? 
No, I'm curious about the. I, I think it's so interesting that they have the lowest assumptions for their reserves. And something just occurred to me: could do they get compensated at all? Management on returns on assets? Could they artificially be trying to depress the amount of assets they hold to boost kind of returns on assets that then lead to better income or something? It seems like an obvious. Uh, it would be too obvious to get past anyone, but um, mm. yeah, that just occurred to me. Do you know how they how they do get compensated? Jeez, you're a cynical fellow. He's called a hero. I know. Jeez, here they are trying to do the right thing, and, uh, <laughs> and they're all always already under suspicion. Um, look, it's it's a good point though. I I will check that out, um, and uh, next time I write about evolution, I'll I'll add that in somewhere. But um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Next it's thing you know, sure Graham, just... Graham's writing up the short report. Now, <laughs> well, I had that article a while ago that gold is a bad investment, even in bad times. <laughs> I think that's still mostly right, <laughs> and I still think um, I still think you want to be super careful about buying gold miners generally. I, I would call this, and I and I highlighted a couple of others in that article. Um, I would call those exceptions rather than a complete change of view. I'd probably rather own a gold miner than a block of gold. Oh, that's controversial. I, I reckon value investors ought to break more rules. You know, there are so many rules that are so restrictive in value investing. You know, you can't buy uh, this or you can't do that. Uh, I reckon value investors would, would be better served if they just um, shed those rules and, and, uh, and be financially naked. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's just like, you know, you get given rules, but then you know, you've got to think for yourself as well. Um, you can't just let other people think for you for, you know, that's how you're probably going to get average average results. So, um, but then I guess if you go out and, and then I, mean, I guess that could also go the other way that, that you know, there's a lot of conventional wisdom that, that is there for a reason. Um, so it's sort of arrogant not to take account of that as well. But I, you know, I kind of tend to agree. I don't know. What do you think, Gray? Well... I don't like rules in general, <laughs> but <laughs> I think I think Graham, that, our resident rebel. <laughs> yeah, I think you can use them as a. You've just got to use them as guidance. Uh, it doesn't mean that th this could be the one gold miner that is better than the rest and deserves an investment. Uh, but equally, then there's probably a lot of value investors that have a long history of bad experiences with gold miners, so have set these guidelines that. They're generally not good investment. Yeah. Well, Graham, was this what underpins your Bitcoin long case at the moment, or what's my Bitcoin long case? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a joke. Uh, uh... Yeah. No. I was, um, sorry, I said it, it was a bit deadpan. Um, uh, yeah. No. I assume you're not long Bitcoin. Uh, if I owned a few, maybe I'd be more long Bitcoin. <laughs> No, I'm not long Bitcoin. Okay, all right. Why are you? That's no, a, there's a lot no, of similar no. things to gold there. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, they're, they're, well, not well, not really. I mean, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I mean, crazy people like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, they've probably got the most in common. Um, well, would you, would you guys we, agree? Maybe we should what? Sorry. That, would you guys agree that Bitcoin? Or crypto is the most obvious bubble I have seen since 1999. It scares me if it's not yeah. a bubble because yeah, the I mean... the environmental damage that it does is just obscene. That yeah. if this keeps going for longer, it's it's just 
I think it's terrible for the well, world. The, th- the thing is as well, I mean, the people that are getting into it now, you know, they can talk about using it as a currency, but no one's using it. Not many people are using it as a currency. People are no. buying it because they think it's going to go up. And yeah, there, there are cryptos that are doubling daily. You can't yeah. use that. As, you can't use that as a currency with, with names we can't say on the podcast. That's that's <laughs> right. We, we, all, we know what they are. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. All the it, you think about um, everything we've learned about bubbles um, in our investing careers. All the bubbles we've seen. This ticks every single box. There is crazy irrational behavior. There is wild speculation. The fools are making money. Um, you know, complete inexperienced people are, are up on the street trying to get in on it. Every box is ticked. This is the, the most the obvious bubble thing, I've seen. The crazy thing that I see about Bitcoin is that there was the same arguments made a few years ago. It had gone yes. up 100,000% or something yes, rather that's, ridiculous. That's right. I can't remember the exact year. But <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like we had the bubble. It popped. And then people were convinced again. Um, yeah. Yeah. Me wonder. Well, um, I mean, yeah, because, well, you know, I guess there, there is the argument that it's like a digital gold or whatever. And, you know, so if we get if we get like all this inflation and, you know, currency isn't worth anything anymore, then, you know, at least you got your Bitcoin. But, um, you know, I don't know if governments are going to let people transact in Bitcoin or, um, you know, if 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 it really comes down to it, like government would would just take back control of the currency i would have thought um mm. so i don't know i don't, yeah but yeah i just think people are you're buying it to make a quick buck at the moment and that's probably the biggest sign but yeah um anyway we're probably going to get like a thousand emails from people now <laughs> yeah <laughs> telling us we're we're uh this is yeah well that's, that's why what... we stick to stocks but um, that's also the, the level of of vitriol and um and hate if you criticize crypto that's also part of the bubble thesis. That's exactly what happens. You go back in 99 and you talk about some of these um, dot-com stocks and you call them frauds or you call them bubbles and, and watch how people come after you. Um, yeah. When you run out of facts every, and evidence, you just revert to name-calling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Every, every bubble is characterized by this sort of um, impassioned behavior. And I but don't anyway. get the, the... The only argument that I see is the whole scarcity idea but i don't find that a very good argument there's lots of things that are scarce in the world um first and is it scarce because... albums <laughs> <laughs> and is it is it really scarce because there are so many cryptos just popping up anyone can really yeah it's one. substitutable yeah, that's yeah that's important too yeah yeah um yeah that's a good point um well, we should have a we should have a crypto episode. Jeez, it'd probably be our most listened to episode, really. Oh, yeah, I know. and we um, could buy one at the beginning of the episode, sell it at the end, and see if we've made anything. <laughs> that can be yeah. our evidence. No, you got to hold it to the moon, Graham. That's what are you talking about? Bitcoin, selling, one million. What is a sell business? <laughs> it'd be such a short podcast. It'd just be us saying it's crap. It's a bubble. And Do you then, guys uh, see any merit whatsoever in any of the underlying arguments? Say, you know, you say, you know, the people maybe not buying it today, but buying it, you know, back at um, when it was, you know, in its infancy. I can see good arguments for the blockchain technology, having a distributed ledger. That makes sense for lots of different businesses and uses. But in terms of Bitcoin specifically, I don't see any merit in that, uh, especially I would have to given agree. its energy intensity. Yeah. 
that it's not even practical as a currency or as any kind of transaction. Exactly. Uh, it, it just does not make sense to me. And it's hilarious that um, millennials, uh, and I think actually a few of us on this podcast are millennials. I am actually, <laughs> technically. <laughs> but um, all these people who are so concerned with ESG and ethical investing are the same one buying crypto. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Without, without well, any hint of, of irony or hypocrisy. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of that stuff going on. Um, yeah, right. hey, sorry, that was just adding is, nothing to that conversation there. But yeah. and this is this is way more talk about crypto <laughs> than than we probably wanted. So let's uh, carry on. And Mickey, that brings right. us to uh, to Vista, which has actually been um, a relatively strong performer in recent months. Even though, am I right in saying that the operating metrics haven't quite recovered yet? that the share price has. Tell us what's going on with Vista. Uh, yeah, so I mean, so we, we, we obviously, so Vista's the cinema software uh, maker, so they uh, control, you know, a massive market share in global cinema um, software. And um, we, we upgraded the stock uh, back in, I think it was September last year, um, <clears throat> kind of attracted to a lot of those qualities. Uh, and... I guess uh, it, it kind of just traded sideways for a while. It was kind of up and down. I mean, obviously, they're going through a really difficult time because a lot of their customers are under the pump and, um, you know, some of their customers are actually in restructuring. They're not actually paying uh, paying, their, paying their bills or, you know, they're getting a bit of a, a, a holiday from, from pay, payments. And, uh, and then on top of that, um, you know, there's there's maybe newer chains that aren't uh, outlaying capex on new software. So you've got this kind of existing customers aren't paying, new ones aren't aren't uh, making any decisions, um, and then you've got you know a small number that are actually permanently closing as well. So basically, the the, the problems for Vista very much related to the macroeconomic situation and uh, and to to kind of their their customers and how they would how they would you know, pull through. Um, and then, so I think, I think basically what you're seeing uh, now is just that that economic situation is improving and uh, people can start to, back in September, nobody, we hadn't really had news of the vaccine uh, and things were very, very uncertain. Uh, so, you know, people tend to assume the worst and um, now people can start to see that actually, um, you know, people aren't going to be kept inside for forever, and 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 probably um, they're going to be coming back to the movie. So, um, so I think that's it, really. And then there's been a couple. Of, there's been a kind of a trickling out. The the headlines back in September were like the, the cinemas are dead. Um, studios mm, are releasing yes. direct to um, to consumers, and 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 that, and so um, it's over. And then now the the um, we're starting to see this trickle of news that um, people are actually coming back to the cinemas. IMAX, for example, said that Asian crowds have, have been really good and they're recording growth now for the first time since the pandemic. Um, and that's just going to start to become more and more the case as um, movies return and as people are allowed to get out of the house and, you know, I don't think anyone's going to want to sit on the couch and watch a movie. I think people are going to be getting getting out there and, and do, doing anything it takes to li leave the living room, to be honest. So um, we kind of forget here in Australia, actually, that 
you know, yeah. almost half the world is still in total lockdown. So yeah, yeah. we're still yeah. in lockdown here. Well, we forgot about you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Canada, the yeah. forgotten country. Oh, uh, don't worry. I was in the same boat for for a while, but not not obviously not to the same extent. But um, so even by comparison, Melbourne got off pretty lucky by many compared to many parts of the world. Mm. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if for cinemas or for travel and all of those things that we've been deprived of, if there's some sort of super reaction on the other end. I know for me, I'm dying to go to the cinema to go travel and do that. So I wonder if there's yeah. a few more people out there I who agree, are just going to... The cinema is the one thing I probably miss more than anything else. I'm I, I dying to go and watch a Marvel superhero movie. Yeah, I, collect, yeah. I collect points through my credit card, which gives me uh, free cinema tickets. And it sends me an email uh, every month telling me how many I've got, and I've got 42 free tickets. Wow. <laughs> because they've, they've just been accumulating that I haven't been able to use them. So there'll definitely be a rush of <laughs> one Canadian to the cinema once they open. <laughs> yeah. Well, Gray might, might single-handedly save them. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of people in the same, in the same boat. Um, you know, well, the uh, evidence is pretty... Is, it's pretty good, actually. So the Chinese cinema numbers have been really good. I think they had their highest ever January, this January. Um, it was even even bigger than pre-pandemic levels. So yeah, there's right. a okay. rebound happening in, in China. And the content makers, the studios are now releasing films um, back into the, the, the cinema platform. So I think um, King Kong versus Godzilla was, has been the biggest grossing film of the year. And that's a that's quite a big budget uh, uh, action flick, and they had the option of launching that just on the streaming service, but they went to cinema, and it's been quite successful. So, so that's probably set up a lot of other studios to to continue to release more product. And it wasn't even that good a movie, so it means that people are just going because they want to go to the cinema. It wasn't a good. Are you crazy? I'm dying to see that movie. Awesome. You might be less two dying monsters, to see it once you start watching. <laughs> two monsters fighting each other. The cinema doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> it's just it's highbrow is what it is. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, are you going to take your I mean, monocle, Gaurav? <laughs> and, and my top hat, yes. Yeah. Um. So. Oh yeah. So this is about Vista. So um. So Vista Group is um yeah so recovering basically. Uh. So hopefully what will happen is that um. You know, cinema that the cinemas come back online. I think you know. Also, there would be some um, bankruptcies, uh, you know, for some of their customers. However, you know, even if they come under new ownership, um, the quickest way to get them back into making money is to just turn the movies back on. So, yeah. uh, you know, and they'll need software for that. So, uh, you know, so I think you know, it's, it's basically a temporary thing um and i think that you know movies will will come back um basically mickey so do you have to some... earn money as a uh sorry does, does vista earn money as a subscription or is it based on the movies that are being played or how many people are watching them or what's it actually tied to yeah income? so there's a there's an upfront kind of like licensing fee and then there's an ongoing maintenance uh fee yeah, that's for the kind of on-premise software uh, they're basically they're, they're transitioning to this software as a service model. So they're putting everything into the, into the, uh, cloud, uh, soon. And that will just be, um, kind of a recurring fee based on the number of actual screens 
uh, in the premise. So, uh, so everything's tied to the number of screens that they're that they're servicing. Um, so yeah, so that's that's kind of the the revenue model. Yeah. Hey, Mickey, do you have some insight into how much capex might be required for the actual product? Because I think they did come out. Was it last year or recently? Anyway, they did say that they had to spend money, more money on software development because it had um, lagged. Yep. So they, uh, yeah. So they basically, yeah. So they, they they were planning to kind of fund that uh, internally, and then COVID happened. So they uh, did do a, a pretty sizable capital raising, um, and so now they've they've still got, I think, sixty five million in cash, uh, right. which Dave said. Uh, will be fine to get them through uh, definitely till the end of the year, um, mm. you know, and that's that's under a very worst case scenario. So when they raised the money as well, they basically said, you know, this is even if all our customers don't pay us until the end of 2021, um, mm. we'll be fine and that'll see us through. Uh, it turns out conditions have actually been better than they thought. So uh, they probably raised a little bit too much money. But what it does mean is that um, that, that, um, transition period is 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 covered uh and they should be fine to to finance that uh they've also done a lot of cost cutting as well i think there was a lot of uh i think there's about 20 million dollars in costs that they actually managed to pull out of the business um mm. as as well um to to kind of reduce that ongoing expenditure so uh yeah i think that they think that they're they're okay now to kind of see through that process and they've actually they're about to launch that new SaaS product, um, I believe this year, and mm. um, and so that should uh, start to bring in some revenue as they as they transition um, pre existing customers across. And finally, I mean, uh, I remember you saying they had about a fifty percent market share globally. Do we have some insight into what the competitor is doing? Are they have they gone under or have they uh, raised money? Do you know what's going on with them? Well, it's hard to get it's hard to get in information because they're mostly private, small, uh, and they're they're kind of very niche. Like they, you know, they'll they'll be like one that services a few chains in Eastern Europe or something. Okay. Uh, so it's hard to get information. What you can probably assume that they were in a similar position to Vista uh, in terms mm. of cash flow and in terms of actually collecting revenue and in terms of their customers going through a lot of trouble and probably so, didn't have access to the liquidity that vista had access to right Vista had to raise a big chunk of money yeah that's right yeah exactly exactly so uh so you know if they're in that situation then um yeah what are they where are they going to go the owners have to either put in more money or maybe yeah. maybe they don't do anything so most likely they've been pulling back on product investment and at the same time vista's been um going going uh going in a lot harder on the product investment uh and so that that um that just means that when when things do normalize when that when that time comes that that vista's product should be absolutely market leading uh and even more so than before Mm. and uh they should just be able to continue taking market share uh from from those competitors uh, so we, you can see that even growing over time, even from that very high level already. Uh, and they, they really are just so far out in front now uh, that uh, it's hard to see anyone else really catching up. So Mickey, my final question is actually a really tricky one, but your price guide, one could argue, might look a bit conservative um, given 
they've probably survived the worst now. We're coming through it. Um, they've got plenty of cash on hand. And as you say, products improved. Is there a case for lifting that price guide a little? Uh, or, well, or is there something I, you're, you're, you're particularly concerned about? No, no. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't really... It, the tricky thing is it's still very unclear what the economics of the business are going to look exactly like uh, in in three to five years time because they are going through this transition right. um, and because uh, they've obviously you know gone through this period where they've uh, you know it's been really difficult so actually kind of forecasting out is is not is not like an easy thing to do mm. uh, so I think it was more so that you know when we when we upgraded uh, you know at a dollar seventy the it was pretty it was a pretty straightforward um, case because it had the same enterprise value as it did in 2015. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, we thought maybe it could do two, two and a half times as much sales when things recovered. So mm. it was a pretty, pretty simple kind of um, calculation. Uh, and so, you know, we'd probably, probably now that we've, we've bought well, we'd probably just be happy to um, hold on, but we'll uh, kind of reassess that price guide, I think, is as things become a little bit clearer and, I don't think we need to be too exact and, um, you know, we just have to ride out this little period and hopefully, and the, and the, and the company is planning to also release um, more metrics in the next result around uh, unit economics that'll help, help a little bit more with that as well. So. Nice. All right. Excellent. Sounds good. All right, gents. I think uh, we, unless someone else has another rant against something people <laughs> are loved by, Everyone else, we should probably end it uh, end it there. By the way, you can, you can send all your complaints about crypto to Mickey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a pretty pretty good spam filter, so but yeah, feel free. I think you Graham's probably... the man, isn't he? Graham's the Bitcoin bull. So <laughs> no, I thought Gorav was. <laughs> Maybe we should invest in a Bitcoin miner. <laughs> Oh, now you're talking. Bitcoin miner, wow. <laughs> the okay. best managed Bitcoin miner in the world. Well, I tell you what, the IDs are getting crazier and crazier, so it's probably time to, to end To this. load up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Graham, thanks for joining us from Vancouver. Hope you, it's not a crazy time over there. Thanks, Gaurav. All right, we'll talk to you again. Mickey, thanks for your time. Thanks. And for everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>